a good friend of mine went to the store Cabela's. And as he was at the store at Cabela's, he was in line. And as he was in line, he heard an employee who works for Cabela's speaking to a guy over the phone. And apparently the guy over the phone wanted to buy a gun. And so the lady who works for Cabela's had to do some screening questions to get some answers first before going forward. And she said, well, you want to buy a gun? Well, I've got a question for you. Have you ever committed a felony? And the guy over the phone said, well, only a small one. As I heard about that story, I couldn't help but think that sometimes we might have that view of personal sin in the world, where we might be tempted to minimize our sin or presume on the grace of God. Maybe our past faithfulness feels like it's good enough, and instead of looking to Christ for forgiveness, we try to atone for ourselves through our own righteousness. We might hear the good news over and over again, but something in us says, I'm really not that bad. I could, I could save myself. The good news from Psalm 51 and what we learn from this passage is that God forgives sincere and heartfelt confession of sin. But God's graciousness does not therefore provide license to sin or live however we want. In this passage, we say that David, he blew it big time, but he responds properly to God. How should we respond to God when we sin? Today's passage is Psalm 51. It's a popular psalm. It's written by King David. It's called a penitential psalm. Penitential comes from the word penitence, which means expressing sorrow for wrongdoing. You can go through Genesis all the way through Revelation, and you will not find a more personal passage than Psalm 51. And the context of King David writing the psalm is this. King, King David was very faithful to God. He was a man after God's own heart. Defeated Goliath. He was a big deal king of Israel. But then he started to coast. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12, we read the narrative. And the context is that the kings went out to war. But David stayed at Jerusalem. He didn't go. He became complacent. And his entitlement and complacency led to some grievous sins. One of them is he had adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. That adultery was 100% David's fault. David adds to his list of major sins. And what he does was uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah, David manipulates the situation of the war to ensure that Uriah goes to the front, and Uriah is killed. In effect, he has Uriah murdered. 
David was a very faithful man. And when God saw this, God didn't just sweep this under the rug and say, well, I'm just a gracious, merciful God. It's okay. You can do whatever you want. Instead, in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, we read these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God, as he often does, sends a person, Nathan. Nathan confronts David, tells him an illustration. And then David, at that moment, knows what he did, was completely broken. And out of that, writes Psalm 51. That's the context of this psalm. And though David blows it big time, he responds properly to God. Here's what he does. First, David turns to God in prayer and asks for forgiveness. Verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Have mercy on me, God. Look to me, God. Pardon me, God. David is not trying to muster his own strength to get through this, but he turns to God in prayer and confesses. Wayne Grudem defines the word mercy as, quote, God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. Saying, God, I'm in distress. Don't give, me what, don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy on me. According to what? My righteousness? No. He says, according to your steadfast love. That word in Hebrew is hesed. It's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. What David is asking is saying, Lord, uh, according to your love, according to your covenant faithfulness to your people, not according to my own righteousness and what I can do, have mercy on me. Because you're the God who's loving and gracious. I have nothing to, to bring to this table whatsoever, but you're the God who can pardon me. This is based on the passage in the Old Testament that most describes God's awesome character. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, repeated over and over again in the Old Testament where we read these words. The Lord passed by and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If you ever want to know what God is like, that is one of the key passages. I'm not going to let the guilty go, but I'm going to forgive those who turn to me. And that's what David does. He, he turns to God in prayer. And throughout his prayer, we, we see sort of a theology of sin, you might say. He says, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's saying, wash, cleanse. Throughout the Old Testament, there's all these ceremonial rituals of washing and cleansing. So that, that's kind of the language that they would use. Ultimately, that would point to the New Testament, to Christ whose blood on the cross washes away the sins of those who believe in him. He says, iniquity and sin, 
and transgression. He uses multiple words to bring more power to what he's saying. Grudem says that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. It's sins of commission, the wrongs that we do, like in David's case, murder and adultery. But sin is also sins of omission, things we should be doing but don't, like expressing compassion for the poor. Augustine used to talk about sin as disordered loves, loving something more than God. In David's case, it was power and prestige and greed and sexual lust, putting that in front of God. And yet he is honest about his sin. One of the biggest differences between a believer and a non-believer is, is not that n- neither one is perfect. We, we all fall and stumble in many ways. But the believer says, oh, I, I, just, I hate my sin. I want to I fight my sin. I really want to become more like Christ and put this sin to death. Whereas an evidence of someone who really doesn't know the Lord is like, mm, I don't really care about my sin that much. David sinned grievously, but his confession is a healthy sign. Confession tends to help things. Not, not overnight, but it does help. When I was in college, my parents gave me a car to borrow, not to have, to borrow. And it was, I didn't like the car but it was something. I was 19 years old, 18, 17. I think I started college when I was 17. Very, very young. I wasn't that good with cars. Wasn't super responsible at that age. Didn't know. Drove fast, really fast all the time, you know. And then I had it for the fall semester, and I didn't take the best care of it. And I thought I was. I thought you just got to put gas in it every couple weeks, and you're good to go. But there's actually more to it didn't realize that, and uh, right before finals, when stress levels were 11 out of 10, and it was 20 below zero in this college town, roughly speaking sometimes, car went out, didn't take care of a certain area of it, had to walk to class. When I went back home to St. Louis, I also had to catch a ride. And coming back to St. Louis, there was a big snow blizzard, and so what should have been a five-hour drive turned into like a 15-hour drive making the anticipation to talk to my parents about this ten times worse. And so finally, when I get home, my parents are like, hey, good to see you. I'm like, great. They're like, where's the car? I was like, oh, the car. Uh, it's my friend Ryan. He just took me here. Uh, his car is right there. They're like, where's the car? I'm like, it's a long story, Dad. Uh, and uh, it's their car. And so I sat there. As nervous as can be, college kid confessing to my dad. It's like, Dad, here's what happened. It's in the shop. It's really expensive. (laughs) Silence. And my mom and dad right away showered me with love, called people, pulled strings, provided help. They weren't mad at all. They were just happy that I was okay. And so that situation taught me that, you know, the anticipation of being honest can be a killer, but after you just let things out in the air, so to speak, things kind of get better. Not, not overnight, but they do. And so, so part of confession is not, it's not to make us 
feel like we are so unbelievably unworthy, but it, it, it's really meant to help us. And this goes for all of us, no matter how long you've been walking with God. I watched a sermon by a pastor named Tim Keller, well-known author, speaker, and writer. And he did a Q&A after a sermon on prayer. And here in the age of, in his 60s, very godly man, he says that on Tuesdays, he spends two hours in prayer just confessing. This is one of the godliest men of this generation. And yet, he is aware that he still needs Jesus every day. This is not to shame anybody. We all need mercy daily. So our, our prayer lives shouldn't be just asking for things, although supplication is important. But as, as the Lord puts in the Lord's Prayer a line of forgiveness, we should continually, regularly go to God in prayer and ask for Forgiveness of known sin right away in, in the cubicle, driving to work silently in your mind. A, a prayer that I read once from a Puritan was, Lord, forgive me for my sins, known and unknown, confessed and unconfessed. It's a prayer that I've picked up in my own prayer life, one that I pray regularly. David says, have mercy on me, O God. The implication is that God is merciful. So if you believe that God is merciful and gracious, but you never run to him for forgiveness and grace, do you really believe that God is merciful? A way to demonstrate that we believe the God of the Bible is merciful, ready to forgive us and love us, is that we run to him in prayer, humbly confess ourselves and say, God, I messed up. I was impatient with my grandkids again. Oh, I, I gossip. I said something behind someone's back that I would never say to their face. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, if you have a hard time being vulnerable with people, maybe because you don't want to be exposed or you don't trust them or past hurt, that, that's totally understandable. But, you know, sometimes we might take that into our walk with God and say, God, I can't be vulnerable with you. It's true that people will let you down over and over again, but God never will. And yes, you can be vulnerable with God because he already knows. You can't hide it from him anyway. And then once you confess, you are more vulnerable as you expose yourself to God. Intimacy happens and you grow. Confession leads to intimacy, intimacy leads to growth. This is one of the primary ways that we grow in the Christian life, is to be honest with our sin with God. So David turns to God and asks for forgiveness. He's also honest about his sin. He is brutally honest. This is what I love about David's response. He says things like this, For I know, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. My sin, I know, I'm aware, I'm aware. In his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin opens up his famous book with this sentence. He says this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God 
and of ourselves. Self-awareness is crucial. We all have blind spots. I'm not always aware of how I come across. Maybe you feel the same way. But we need to, to know ourselves. And the more we are aware of our sin, the more we are able to confess it. The more we become like Christ, the more we see how much we need him. Our consciences, the, the inner sense that God has placed into every person that tells us right or wrong, it will, it will convict us. The Holy Spirit living inside of each believer will let us know. One commentator, he writes about his personal struggle with anger. He writes this, he says, First, we often remain so personally unaware that we do not even recognize sin when it happens. Anger has been a slippery emotion for me. My family did not do anger well. It just wasn't allowed. I now find that when I feel anger, I am frequently misled because the anger I feel is usually a cover-up for some other emotion I would rather not admit. Fear, guilt, shame, sin, vulnerability. The first step I must take is to identify the true source of the anger I am feeling. Often I am unaware up to this point of what is really bothering me. Like the psalmist, I must first know my transgressions before I can act to deal with it. David was self-aware and he was honest. This is the king of Israel. This is a man after God's own heart. Confession is for pastors, for priests, for ministry leaders, for church members, for everyone. All of us need God daily. What I love about David's response is that when you read the narrative in 2 Samuel 11 through 12, and when David confronts him, David does not make any excuses. He doesn't blame shift like Adam blamed Eve in the Garden of Eden. He didn't say, oh, Bathsheba, she was just there. He did not try to use his power. He wasn't defensive. Uh, you, you should not confess sins that you didn't commit. You shouldn't allow people to try to control you or manipulate you. You, sh you shouldn't say my bad when really it, it wasn't your bad. There, there is a sense in which you can take more ownership than you need to, and that could, that could make people trample all over you. So, so we, we want to we practice self-care. But when we do sin, we need to be honest about it. And that's what, that's what David did. He was an unbelievably powerful man. If you, if you confront one of the most powerful leaders today, in any realm, politics, religion, sports, and you call them out for something, it is likely not to go well. I mean, David had armies of people who could readily execute Nathan. He, he easily had power to have some sort of backlash. And yet, he did not. He was honest about his murder and adultery. Now, for some of us, that can feel very abstract. Say, well, I've been faithful to my spouse, never murdered anyone. But when we see in the, in the New Testament when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, you see that he takes various rules of the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, you might say, the first five books of the Bible, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the Ten Commandments and the various rules that God gave to his people, Jesus takes those and he makes things actually harder. So, so you may have not committed murder, but for example, Jesus says to you in Matthew 6, 21 through 23, and this is for me too, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus says, hey, you didn't commit murder, but you have unrighteous anger in your heart. That still counts as something to be confessed and repented of. You may have been faithful to your spouse with fidelity, but, but Jesus talks about lust, and he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Confession and turning to God is it's not just about the big stuff, like murder and adultery, it is. But it's the stuff like unrighteous anger and impatience, which also count as sin before God. So we must regularly take these sins to God and confess and be honest because we have to admit that we have offended him. It says that in verse 4 where David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. David's sin did, it really did hurt Bathsheba's life. Uriah, he hurt many people. Sin does hurt people. But before sin is horizontal, it is vertical. It is first and foremost an affront to God. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for your sins, the moment you believe that he is God, that he is Savior, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And yet there's ongoing sin. And, and just because all sins are forgiven doesn't mean we should stop confessing. We should continue to confess because confession of sin demonstrates to God that we recognize that he is holy and that he is really big and that he is merciful. And apart from his lavish grace, we have nothing to bring to the table. Some sins are grievous that Christians commit. It, it can distort fellowship with God. In the book of Peter, uh, Peter tells husbands, hey, get along with your wives and love them and serve them well. He has a line there in 1 Peter where he says, if you don't, then when you pray, God's not going to listen to your prayers. This is for Christian men. Uh, sin, sin has a way of ongoing, unrepentant sin can distort fellowship with God, can break fellowship. You, can't, you cannot get out of his hands. He will be 100% committed to you forever. When God starts a good work in you, he will finish it. He will bring you safely home. But we are, we are talking about our fellowship with him. Just like there's drama in the household between son and daughter or mother and son. Son sins against mother, vice versa. Things might be unsettled for a little bit. Things are hard at home. It's awkward. Silence. Well, an unhealthy way is to ignore it and just sweep it under the rug and just kind of move on. 
And many of us probably grew in homes like that. But a more healthy way is, hey, mom, dad, let's talk. Hey, brother, sister, look, look I feel something right now. Let's, let's chat. Let's confess. If there's something there, let's move on. And that fellowship is restored again better. You, you, you still love your kid. You still love your mom. But, but there's some disturbance there. And confession has a way of healing it. God is 100% committed to each one of his people. And he will finish the work he began in you. But he wants that close fellowship with you. And confession helps with that. It's a gift that God has brought forth to us. And David continues to talk about this sin issue. And he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Talks about the total inability to choose God and to do what is right apart from God's help. The Apostle Paul in Romans 23 says, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the picture of our sin. And David runs to God and asks for forgiveness. He's honest with God. But he just doesn't stop there. He also seeks something more, something fresh, something new. He's not just trying to get these nagging feelings away of, oh, I messed up, I just, I just want to talk to God real quick, feel better, and move on. He doesn't do that. What does he do? The next thing he does is he, he prays for restoration and renewal. So he's not just going to God and saying, here's how I messed up. I want to be honest with you. Take this guilty feeling away from me, and then I'm going to go back and do my own thing. That's using God. We don't want to use God. We want to actually see the beauty of God and love him and serve him and be strong spiritually. And so what David prays for next is he prays for restoration and renewal, something that only God can do. This is not 10 steps to whatever. This isn't follow six rules and then you'll get this. This is a supernatural initiation of God to work in someone's life to give them spiritual renewal in response to prayer. He says things like this, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Saying, renew me, God. Change me, God. Create a new heart in me. Restore me. I want to be a spiritually vibrant follower of Jesus. I don't want to just confess stuff. I want to, I want to be on fire for you. Do a work in my life that only you can do. And no matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how far away you've fallen behind, this restoration and renewal is possible by the grace of God. In Cambridge, England, there's this beautiful Gothic building called the King's College Chapel. Beautiful, big building there in England. And inside this building, there's this big painting that is unbelievably well done. I mean, it looks amazing. By an artist named Peter Rubens. He called it the Adoration of the Magi. 
But in 1974, and in active political protest, somebody went inside of the building when they should not have, went to the painting and ruined it, and wrote letters and things all over it. Afterwards, many thought that this painting was ruined forever, but someone put a note beside it that said, it is believed that this masterpiece can be restored to its original condition. And it was completely restored. I have heard of friends in Christ who grew up with mothers who abandoned them or fathers, vice versa, and as a result there was sexual immorality or drunkenness. Um, and then 20s or 30s they came to Christ and I would talk to them and one of the things that I've heard a few times that some who have so experienced the grace of God is that they will say something like, I don't really even remember living that life of sin anymore. I mean, God has so blocked that from my memory. I am so different now that I don't dwell on that. I have tasted the grace of God, the goodness of God. I have been restored. We're talking about people living in sin for years after years after years, and they believe the gospel message, and God comes in and wipes away their sin and restores them, and they are never the same again. They don't even remember it. That's amazing. Uh, it's difficult to be honest. It's difficult to confess, but regardless, there's, there's restoration that could, that could happen now, Francis Schaeffer, who has actually lived in St. Louis for a while, he's a famous Christian apologist. Apologist means defending the faith. He used to talk about substantial healing. It may not be full healing in this life because of Satan and sin and sickness and darkness and ongoing sin. But there's substantial healing available through God. And when we sin against one another, we hurt one another. Misunderstandings and slander and believing the worst in someone. God is the great physician who can heal that as well. So David, is, he's not just confessing, yes he is, but he's also saying, Lord, restore me, restore me. And fourth, what David does as well is he worships God. He doesn't just stop with restoration. He wants to worship and sing how appropriate our songs have been this morning to show restore me God clean me I worship you I sing to you he says things like this verse 15 oh Lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh God you will not despise he talks about sacrifices in Old Testament they would use bulls and goats things like that Say, put this forward, priests would pray over it, and that was, in some sense, to foreshadow Christ who would come in the New Testament and die on the cross, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what this psalmist is saying is, in our, our day, would be like, God, here's money. God, here's my church attendance. God, here's my good deed for the day. Take that. Let that, let that clear me as innocent in your eyes. But what, what the psalmist is saying is, God, you, you, what you're looking for is a contrite and humble heart. What, what, 
he's not downplaying sacrifices. Sacrifices as good as the last verse in the passage were, is show. But what he's saying is, what good is this giving to the church, church attendance, doing all these good deeds, if my heart isn't right with you? What, what good is doing all these sacrifices? You, you don't care about that stuff. It's not like you need money. You're the God who owns it all. What God wants is a contrite, humble heart who's willing to confess and worship him. So we've seen the, the structure of the psalm is, God, I blew it. God, I want to be honest with you. God, restore me. God, I worship you. David committed adultery. He had someone murdered. And yet, his psalm ends on a good note. Because God is that gracious. I read a metaphor about a college freshman who went to a dorm laundry room with his dirty clothes in a bundle. And he was so embarrassed by how dirty his clothes were that he didn't open his dirty clothes to when he put them in the washer and dryer. He just left that in a bundle because he didn't want anyone else to see. Put it in the washer, put it in the dryer. Then he got his clothes and they were wet and they were dry. They weren't clean because he didn't open up the bundle. They were too tight together. He didn't open up. Same sense in our hearts and our lives of sort of this exterior appearance. God sees the heart. God knows the heart. And the message is, he wants a contrite heart. Open up. Go to him. Confess to him. Jesus has already paid the debt that we owed. There is forgiveness and love available through believing in Christ, regardless of how many sins we've committed. Don't let pride or insecurity or fear of man stop you from being honest with God, to confess to God, because God is ready to forgive a contrite and heartfelt heart towards him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace this morning. Lord, forgive us for the ways we have sinned, known and unknown, confessed and unconfessed. Lord, please let us not be exterior people looking for validation through others. Lord, we cannot fool you. Lord, there's always misunderstandings. There's always hardships that happen. Sometimes life is confusing. Our parents weren't there for us and we went a different direction. Lord, we, we say, Lord, we need your help. Lord, please help us to have contrite hearts before you and restore and renew us as spiritually vibrant followers of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.